Welcome to Football and Society, the new podcast exploring societal issues through the lens of the beautiful game. In this series, we're exploring topics including grassroots football in a South African township, class and hooliganism in Poland, and the gendering of defining football moments. This week, we'll be discussing research on blind football in Zimbabwe. The history of sports participation for people with visual impairments can be traced back to the early 19th century. Since then, sport for people with visual impairments has become accessible across the world, thanks largely to institutional developments, including the creation of the International Blind Sports Federation in 1981. A recent study conducted by Kieran Richardson tells the story of blind football's introduction in Zimbabwe. Kion, working with Zimbabwe's National Paralympic Committee, played a pivotal role in introducing blind football to Zimbabwe with one-day coaching clinics for specialist teachers and students with visual impairments. The sport is now played in all 10 of the country's provinces. Keon's study looked at the various contextual factors influencing activity and participation among high school students. These included issues concerning opportunities for access, physical health and well-being, and the development of social relationships. Semi-structured interviews were conducted with female and male students between the ages of 15 and 23. In analysing the data, Keon used a contextual framework that focuses on the ways individuals make meaning of their experience, and in turn, the ways the broader social context impinges on those meanings. The narratives uncovered by the research revealed that students' physical health improved and their participation allowed them to challenge dominant ideas about being visually impaired. These findings offer national governing bodies, schools, and organisations rich information on removing barriers to participation, not only in Zimbabwe, but across the rest of the world. Keon recently completed a master's in sport and Olympic studies at the University of Scuba. His dissertation drew on his experiences in Zimbabwe. Keon's research on sport and capital was also discussed in a previous podcast where we looked at the football and the community initiatives in the UK. It's a pleasure to welcome Keon on the Football and Society podcast today to talk about his study. Keon, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem, no. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for um, the time to join the podcast. I appreciate it very much. So. Absolutely, our pleasure. Um, we'll crack straight on. First question, what inspired your research into blind football and the specific focus on Zimbabwe? Um, so what inspired what inspired me was from my undergrad studies, I've been quite interested in the sociology of sport, so the relationship between sport and society and how people's social position influences their engagement or disengagement in sport. And being actively involved in, in blind football for quite a number of years, I found that there's a lot of there's a lot of work on the physical aspect of blind football, so performance related, like looking at cardiovascular systems of national team players. But there isn't much behind the sociological factors. So I felt that if there be such a, a big research gap, I felt that my experience um, and my passion kind of led me to into going into researching blind football and to provide more more of a context on the ground for people, like you mentioned, national governing bodies, clubs across the world in terms of the sociological factors behind blind football and participation. And particularly with my project in Zimbabwe, I think it went hand in hand because it's been growing for quite a while for the past two, three years now. And I feel it was quite easy access to do to do interviews because I've done the interviews whilst I was doing the coaching clinics. So it was quite easy easy access to have like an insider insider position within the context of, of blind football in Zimbabwe. 
you know, it's a really interesting read and I think a really important study. I think we'll all agree on that. Just a really practical question, uh, if I may. Can you just explain how the game works with regards to the different categories of player and also just a note on the, the equipment needed? Yeah, so in terms of the categories, there's three classification categories by the Wildlife Sport Federation. So there's totally blind, which is classified as B1. And then there's B2, B3, which is partially sighted. So any player, all the four, there's five five players, one goalkeeper, you can be sighted or partially sighted. And then the four out four players have to be totally blind. And they have to wear eye patches in both eyes because some players, even though they're totally blind, they still have a small level of light, light perception. If they don't have any any eye patches on the blindfold, they can kind of lift their nose up a little bit and kind of use that as an advantage to gain to have more confidence compared to other players who have no no light perception whatsoever. But because there's quite in different countries, there's quite a low population of people who are totally blind. That's the standard rules internationally, but in terms of in international competitions, but when it comes to domestic leagues, because there's not in some countries, like here in Japan, for example, there's quite a low population of people who are totally blind. So they have, in terms of the outfield players, there's totally blind, there's partially sighted and even sighted players. But I think I think the rule is you can only have one sighted outfield player on the, on, well, two sighted outfield players on the pitch at one time, so the goalkeeper and then one, one outfield player. And in terms of equipment, you have like an audio ball because everyone's wearing blindfolds. A lot of it's dependent on sound. So all be locating the ball. Um, and then having rebound balls on both sides of the pitch to keep the game flowing. So rather than it like being in football, the ball goes out, you have to restart with a throwing to keep the ball, to keep the game so consistent. Um, you have the rebound boards so that the ball keeps in play. So it's only if it goes out on the touchline, then it starts restarts with a um, goalkeeper's throw. But it's pretty much most of it's pretty much the same same as eleven side football. Other than the ball, there's no side and the number of players is pretty much the same same objective to score. And you mentioned that you worked on that project to introduce the sport to Zimbabwe. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role in the project? So, for example, how did you first become involved and what assistance did you have in doing that? When I finished my undergrad studies, I spent some time in Zambia. So I was just coaching sport and, and teaching PE. And I worked in one, one special school and they had children with different disabilities. And I found that there was a major gap in terms of opportunities to participate in sport. So from the teacher's perspective, they didn't really know how to introduce sport for people with disabilities, um, the different type of activities, and based on their level of functioning, their individual attributes, what activities they can do that meets their personal needs. So when I when I finished my undergrad, um, I kind of developed my own blind football program that I want to introduce in an African country, because I found that there was a large population of people who got vision impaired throughout the African continent, but there weren't many opportunities to play blind football. And I came into contact with the Zimbabwe National Paralympic Committee president by email, and we were just communicating by email back and forth about just understanding the local context on the ground, what sports there that's been introduced. Yeah, from there, we kind of held a one-day one workshop at the University in Zimbabwe, which is one of the oldest universities in the country, quite known historically for, for their, their offer of sport. So from their side, they, they of course, they have all the knowledge. The organisation, the National Paralympic Committee, have all the knowledge of their coaches, the institutions that have people, students who are visually impaired. 
So the president invited all the different teachers from different provinces to come down. And we just held a, a one day workshop to just introduce introduce the, uh, the sport, the rules, the different activities. And then from there, we found out there was a major interest because we found that given how big Zimbabwe is and the different provinces, we found that there were three main provinces at first. So there was Harare, which is the capital city, then Bulawayo and Masvingo, which is in the southeast and southwest of Zimbabwe. And initially started as a pilot, pilot program, pilot project. And they kind of just snowballed because we saw after we done one school, then the neighboring school said, oh, we've got students as well. Or when we introduced it at a particular school, they said they had another contact and then it just went on from, it just snowballs from there. Um, and then that's when we, we got support from the International Blind Sport Federation because they they have a budget for blind football projects in Africa. So we got access to to purchase blind footballs and, and the blindfolds because the blind footballs, they're typically made in Pakistan and then they're shipped to different different manufacturers. So they're, they're quite difficult to, to get hold of. Really. You mentioned in the study the different concepts of disability between African and Western societies, with Western societies looking to use sport to integrate, while African societies are focused on explaining why people with disabilities have become as they are. I think it's the phrase yeah. that's used. Um, yeah. Clearly, there's, of course, tremendous value in using sport to integrate. But what would you say to those who have concerns about imparting western values on africa i see i see you really i think you you have to really go with an open mind because what works in the western world doesn't always work in africa you know even just the way the economy works a lot of it's based on informal trade in certain african countries whereas in the western world it's typically based on formal trade so the same thing comes when it comes to disability um i think the reason why sport is used as a tool for integration in Western societies because, because of the disability rights movement that's, that's come back such a long way. In a lot of African countries, it's quite a young, uh, quite a young movement. So using sport as a tool for integration may not have the same effect because in some cases, disability is still largely stigmatized. There's still loads of, loads of people with disabilities who are hidden at home in, in certain African countries because it's, disabilities are seen as a taboo and there's a number of like taboos and a lot of like misconceptions as to why a person has a disability and it's typically like if there's a blame on like if a parent if a mother has a child is gives birth to a child with a disability there's a lot of misconceptions about the woman cheated or or lo- or something that's got to do with sin or, or anger from god and stuff like that. there's a lot of re- religious attributes associated so when it comes to things like sport, it's quite difficult because you're still having to break so many cultural beliefs. So I think you really have to understand the local context in terms of which African country, because some African countries, the disability rights movement is 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 really pushed. So Zimbabwe is is argued to be like one of the pioneers of the disability movement in, in Africa. So you can see in certain sectors, with sport being one of them quite prominent, people with disabilities are quite active in sport in Zimbabwe. Whereas you take other countries like Zambia, for example, which is literally next door to Zimbabwe, they're still they're still finding their feet around when it comes to sport for people with disabilities. It's not as it's not as widely promoted or advocated compared to compared to Zimbabwe. So I think you really have to understand understand the local context and what yeah, just getting people's perspective um, from a number of stakeholders. So people that work 
in disability rights organizations, people that work in schools, people that work in government to understand a holistic perspective rather than just going from what was worked in, in your country. It was really re interesting reading your dissertation because you talk about the history of, of, of sport and disability and actually in Europe or and the West, one of the key uh, moments in the development of uh, sports for the disabled is actually the World War II and the mass injuries following yeah. that. And that actually it took a huge almost historical catastrophe in Europe itself for people to begin to kind of think about sports in that way. Um, that, I find that really interesting. Your study, you say in your conclusion that these findings of yours, they can really help organisations looking to promote blind football. I was wondering, have you had uh, many people contact you, many organisations since its publication? I've had a few, but I think the challenge I found in research is that, and it's, it's quite ironic, really, that I find that people kind of shy away from in sport people shy away from research like practitioners find it like oh it's too much to read or it's they find that they're not because it's so theoretically driven with so much scientific data they feel that it's out of their reach but ultimately it's to, it's to complement what they're doing and support what they're doing on the ground so i feel sometimes there's a divide between researchers and practitioners and i think i've had i've had some interest with people but i think again it, i think there's that and as well I think with with the situation we're in with COVID it's kind of like that's kind of overcasted everything because a lot of this research I've done was kind of pre-COVID or in the midst in the midst of it so I kind of done I kind of done the research interviews around February March and that was kind of when it was kind of emanating it was growing across different different countries whereas now there's major just focus on on well how does this fit in with COVID it's just it's almost like this is Although it's come out recently, it's almost as if this is like five years, five years old now. How much is happening almost every day? But I think, yeah, I think people people are quite interested in it. But I think there's a lot of stuff that's happening now that's over overshadowing everything. I think especially now with things like the Paralympics, there's a major focus on on that side of sport rather than the grassroots grassroots level. Spot on on how things have stopped in many respects because of the pandemic they, it's almost like time has just disappeared into this weird kind of vortex yeah. and you just you can't really make any sort of plans for like two or three days ahead never mind i guess looking into something as, as engrossing and involved as this but I, I don't doubt for a second that once it all all clears up i mean especially with your dissertation as well because it'll get published i don't doubt it that the interest will pick up massively because it, it is it's one of the most fascinating academic articles I think I've ever read. One of the reasons, I guess, you know, that football has such mass appeal is that it is, uh, it's relatively inexpensive. I mean, ultimately, it's kicking a ball around. And I remember when I was a kid, like on a council estate in Gateshead, it was like, I mean, you would have like, like 30 to 40 people playing football because it was literally all you needed was a football to kick around. And I guess that is what allows it to be played by almost anyone anywhere in the world, regardless of the economic situation. So I'm, I'm thinking, does you know, you mentioned the the special football in, you know, the, the kind of uh, the fact that there's, you know, you you have to have um, areas where the ball can rebound from to play. Is it is it a challenge? Obviously, is it, is it like a financial challenge for people to get involved in playing football? It is to an extent, but I think it's more in terms of the human resources that makes it a real challenge because ultimately blind football in terms of its origins, it was majorly institutionalised. So it, it emanated from Brazil and Spain almost early the 1920s and it was mainly in the special schools so ultimately even to even now to some extent a lot of the knowledge of blind football is largely confined to 
experts or quote unquote ex experts or coaches in the field. So ultimately, it's not mass promoted, and that's again comes to around one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to promote research in blind football because it's arguably the same thing. Do you need the eleven side pitch to play football? Not really. You just need to play football and ultimately just improvise improvise the ground because it's similar similar to you when I was when I was growing up, we just used to play on council estates behind someone's wall or or in the car park or in the local park near to us. And I think in, in blind football and a lot of other Paralympic sports, because it's so institutionalized, there hasn't been that shift where people can just play by themselves, just play unstructured. And I think that's one thing I'm trying to shift in terms of giving players their own ball so they can play where wherever they wherever they are. So outside of school. But I think because there's not really there's kind of like a divide between people who, who are aware of the sport and people who aren't, because ultimately it comes down to what type of school you go to. Um, I think in the context of, of Zimbabwe, it's whether you're allowed to go to school or not, because ultimately there's a lot of financial challenges that come behind going to school. And not all schools have provision for blind students. And then again, if, if there's minimal provision in certain schools for education, then arguably for sport, it's going to be even less. So again, it, it, there's so many factors that that come into it, but I think, yeah, I think when it comes to like the equipment, the cost of equipment, I think having the ball, like once you have the ball, I think ultimately you just improvise all of that, all of those other things, really. So yeah, I think there is some financial challenges, but I think it's more the human resources that, that that's a bigger challenge. Just to go back to one of the points that we discussed earlier on, just the rules of the game, as we discussed, see four totally blind outfield players with one sighted or partially sighted goalkeeper. So I guess the sport is at least in theory an example of integration between disabled and non-disabled participants players. Yeah. Have you any sense of this mixed participation leading to changed attitudes on the part of both sighted and visually impaired or blind players? Definitely, yeah, definitely. I think in terms of blind players, I think in different contexts and, and different areas, I think a lot of the times they've been told they can't participate in certain activities and football's been one of them saying, oh, because of, because of your visual impairment, you can't play sport. Ultimately, they feel this sort of inferior complex to people who are sighted, where I think even in, in some of the data from my paper in the, and in, in my thesis and just speaking to players during the coaches case, you found that they felt this level of parity to those who are sighted because they were saying, they, they can do what the sighted person do. They can play football, they can kick a ball. People are coming to watch them play. Their parents are interested. And the fact that they they can score against a sighted person shows that they can say that they're better than they're better than some sighted players in some in in some senses. So definitely. And then I think on the people who are sighted, I think it's a similar thing where they, they're not really interacted with people who are blind in such a, a positive way way or interactive way where they can find out their capabilities so i think it's shifted their their mindset of how they perceive people who are blind when it comes to sport and just everyday life but i think a lot of it depends on the participation experience itself not just bringing the sport i think it's ultimately how how the experience is structured because even in some environments that can ultimately reinforce certain stereotypes from from both sides there's actually a quotation from a player with visual impairment who talks about playing with sighted players. And they say, I started coaching them some skills. I blindfolded them in order for them to play. As they were playing, they realised that it was difficult. 
they appreciated that the skills are very important and that I am good. And that was from Rufaro. This made me wonder to what extent does blind football actually require a very different skill set than that required for sighted football? I think two things that probably stand out is there's definitely a lot more coordination involved in sighted football, 11 aside football. It's often dribbling the ball with one foot, pushing it with the inside of your foot, your laces. Whereas with blind football, to keep the ball closed, you're, you're typically pushing the ball from the instep of your foot, from your left foot to your right foot constantly. So you're constantly having the imbalance. So I think there's a lot of coordination that's involved and a lot of orientation and mobility that's needed because it's so multi-directional because it's five aside. There's so much going on. Ultimately, I think the big thing I've seen and probably experienced myself is that you, you kind of need a high level of resilience because ultimately you're inside the front, inside the field, you know, you don't have, you know, any assistant technological device. You don't have a cane. You're literally by yourself. Um, you have a guy that's guiding you here and there, but ultimately you're in the field without any blind, with your blindfold on. And ultimately, you've got another 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 eight players doing the seven players, so you're doing the exact same thing. So I think, you know, when it comes to, there are occasions where you clash heads with other players or stuff like that, where it, it, it can be it can be quite frightening for the first time when that happens. But I think, again, if you if you enjoy it quite more, I think your resilience builds up with, with each experience. So I think the risk of injury is is a bit higher or is, is a lot more the collisions and stuff like that, a lot a lot more frequent so i think psychologically you need to be you need to be quite strong to handle to handle it no doubt i don't think i'll ever not be like i'll be mind blown even the thought of it you know like i mean obviously from a from a sighted person the the, the thought of it is just uh as i say it, it's it's mind blown absolutely mind blown um one of the the themes generated from your research is uh, quote transcendence of disability identity i found this really moving and powerful um can you please explain it with reference to the research yeah so so the one thing like i've mentioned that there's a lot of stigmatization behind disability there's a lot of placement of fault and error on the individual so not only in sport but in many other many other areas of life they kind of read they kind of um internalize those 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 thoughts so even when it comes to when it comes to football, and it's not just in Zimbabwe, I've seen it in, in many other countries where I've coached my football, there's a lot of there's a lot of self-doubt that some players have. So even when I've done a, a five-day coaching clinic in 2019, one of the matches went to penny shootouts and one of the girls was saying that they're scared because they're blind and lots of people are telling them from the sidelines what to do. So ultimately I think how they how they perceive themselves they have like a low level of self-esteem when it comes to sport because it's something that's completely new to them like can you imagine learning how to play football at the age of 19 and you never played sport before or you've, you've had minimal experience playing sport so when they've had these experiences i think like i said they've been able to refute these identities of of disability so when people are told oh you're disabled you can't you can't do this, you can't do that, you're limited in these capacities, they'll be able to say, no, I'm not. And they're able to show experiences of how, they, how, they, how they're not. I think with disability, they kind of pity themselves. So like I said, the broader perspective of disability, they've kind of internalised that themselves. So they believe that they, they can't do certain things. They have low levels of confidence in certain areas. So I think now they're, they're not afraid to say they have, how they perceive, them, how they perceive disabilities, 
is shaped a new lens. So they see themselves quite positively. They have a broader identity. They have a broader sense of themselves and their capabilities. And that's what I meant by, by that. So through participating in blind football, through different successes of learning different things, I think they're able to, to shape their own identity about how they perceive their own body. Because ultimately, they, they, they've been shown that they're, they've been led to believe that their body is not fit to take part in sport. But I think through their experience in blind football, they'll be able to, to change that in a positive sense. We recorded a podcast recently about mixed sex football. Uh, and obviously, it's not something that we've seen at professional level. And the likelihood is that we probably won't see that for a long time, if ever. Yeah. Is blind football a mixed sex sport? And if so, does it have the potential to show that some of the arguments used to keep cis men and women apart inside of football might be hollow? Over the past few years, there's been quite a number of, of cases where there is there is no, because the sport is still developing, there is no divide between having separate genders. But I think it ultimately, so for example, in 2017 European Championships in Berlin, Belgium had one, one female player, and that was the first time a female player competed in the European Championships. And similarly, the... The captain of Austria is a is a female player, and Australia also has a female player in their national team. So there are plenty of cases, but I think the difference is I think with eleven side football, there's so much commercialization of football. Ultimately, it's not really about what's right or wrong or what should be done. It's ultimately about consumerism. Really, it's about what what sells ultimately. And I think there will be so many political arguments if that happens in sport, because ultimately, if you have like, and I think with blind football, I think what it shows is not about the divide between men and women. It's ultimately about individual attributes. There's cases where women have the attributes to play with men and, and vice versa. Whereas I think in Lebanon-side football, I think because of how commercialised it's been and the amount of billions of pounds that's involved in, in football, the Lebanon-side, there's a lot of politics that will come with these sorts of changes. So to have a woman player in the Arsenal men's team, for example, it, it now opens up a lot of arguments to say, well, they, she should be paid as much as the men are being paid. She should get the, the same sponsorship deals the men are getting. Ultimately, that will that happen? It's quite, it opens up a whole lot of doors. Then if that happens and it comes to, well, then why isn't the women's Super League getting the same amount of fun as the Premier League? So it just, it just opens up loads of different doors. Whereas I think in blind football, because I think the sport isn't as commercialised yeah, there are still opportunities for that to happen. And again, because the number of blind people in different countries are, are so low, I think ultimately to have sufficient participation numbers mixed, mixed genders is also essential. You adopt the international classification of functioning disability and health as a theoretical framework to underpin your research. Can you explain this theory to us and how it was applied in your research? When we look at this really... I think typically it's looked at for there's lots of different models to apply to disability. So there's typically the medical model, the social model, and the, the biological model. But I think the medical model is, is typically applied throughout different societies where there's typically seen that there needs to be some medical treatment to, for disability. It's, it's typically seen as a as an individual tragedy. Whereas this framework kind of applies um, a number of different models. So it's sort of bio psycho and social so it's ultimately looking at a person's level of functioning between their health health conditions their environmental factors and their personal factors. and 
ultimately, rather than seeing the person as disabled, is looking at how the environment shapes disability. So I use that model to, to explain how both environmental factors, like that is due toward disability, facility access, compared with personal factors such as the person's psychological well-being, their, their physical health, create barriers and facilitators to participate in sport. So that's how I was able to find the different different factors that influence influence participation. Just a final question here about the next level of the game in Zimbabwe or kind of more accurately at international level. So just having a look at the kind of world rankings of, of blind football and the teams that have been successful in international competitions, as you kind of alluded to earlier, there's a mixture of the kind of traditional football nations like like Spain, like Brazil, like Argentina, alongside yeah. countries in Eastern Europe and, and Africa as well, uh, like Mali is one example. I just wondered whether we're likely to see Zimbabwe competing and possibly succeeding at international level in the coming years as the next stage of the game's development in the country. Yeah, we're we're definitely looking to to compete internationally. I think it could be a biased perspective, but I think in the long running, I think we can can be quite up there in the rankings because I think ultimately, because the pathway for blind football is so short, a lot of countries have done top-down approach. So they start with a national team. And then after that, it's kind of like, well, that's it really, because there hasn't really been, there hasn't really, really been much development on the ground. Whereas again, the competitions are, are biannual, they're every two years. So ultimately, if you, between those two years, what are you doing? What league do you have? What participation opportunities do you have? What new players are you trying to recruit? So ultimately some teams, you see them for one year and then after that they're not really participating in other competitions whereas we kind of start from the bottom up and it's take it's taken us a longer a longer way but we feel that we'll have a lot more sustainability in the long run because we've gone into those of different schools and communities we have players as young as five and players as old as 43 playing playing blind football so in the long run we're able to to draw from a, a wide range of players so i think in the next because now the sporting calendar has changed because of everything with COVID going on. All of the regional championships have been pushed to next year. So we're looking to participate in the regional championships next year. But in the long run, as I, as I said, I think we can we can definitely compete for top 10 rankings. I fully expect to see you on the sidelines in the uh, the Olympics in the next eight years, mate, no doubt. Um, Kion, we'll leave it there. That was absolutely superb in a real education. So thank you ever so much. In terms of your work, if people want to engage with you, engage with your work, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, they can reach out to me on, on social media. So my Facebook name is my name. So Keon Richardson, A-E-O-N. My Twitter is finally Keon. And yeah, via, via email. So this is my full name. So Keon Richardson at hotmail.co.uk. Brilliant. So, we'll put all that in the episode notes in any ways. And um, just leaves it for me to say it. Thanks ever so much for that. And um, hopefully, once you've had your mark back from your dissertation, mate, we'll get you back on to discuss that as well. (laughs) 